Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is Exodus 18. If you choose to use the Pew Bible, it is on page 59. Exodus 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses set out to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statues of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, 
but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of God. Good morning, church. We are in a series in the book of Exodus, as you heard, from slavery to glory. That's, that's where the Israelites are going, from slavery to glory. That's where we're going. And we're trying to show you that their, their story is really our story. Uh, this is the defining account, the defining story of the Old Testament, of the Israelite people. That God powerfully rescues his people out of slavery and brings them into his glorious presence. That's where the end of Exodus will end. That's what we're going to see in just a couple chapters. His glory comes down on Mount Sinai. And why does God do that? Why does God rescue a people? He does this so that the Israelites will be a shining light for all the nations, which will come out in the text today, that they too might come to worship this true and living God, Yahweh. We're in Exodus 18. The Israelites are in the middle of the wilderness. They're actually at the foot of Mount Sinai already. God led them into the wilderness, as we've seen, to test them, to reveal what was in their hearts. Exodus 15 to 18 is a section on testing. Will they trust God in the midst of the wilderness? And then Exodus 18 is kind of, kind of a boring chapter, right? It's, there's not much action here. What's going on here? It's really a linking chapter. Right, A lot of exciting things happening before this, plagues and wilderness and manna from heaven and water from the rock, all kinds, of, and battle, like lots of drama, and then you kind of slow way down here, and then 19 and 20, God's glory fills the sky, and it's kind of crazy, and, and you get more, more action, but in this right here in the middle, you just have this, this, this kind of linking chapter where, where it's kind of a summary. Here's where Israel's been, and here's a preview of what is to come. And that what is to come is the giving of the law. So this chapter really sets the, the groundwork for the giving of the law. God's mission and godly wisdom. This chapter shows how God is fulfilling his mission of making himself known to the nations by saving a people to himself. And it starts with something as basic as a family reunion. Anyone ever been to a family reunion? Let me see how many people have have been to one, have heard of them, all right? You're like, I never go to those. Some of us have. Family reunions can be a mixed bag, can't they? There's the excitement of seeing family members that you haven't seen in a while, right? I want to reconnect with so-and-so, my cousins, my aunts and uncles, and, and maybe there's new babies, like new people in the family, or someone's got married, you want to meet them. And so there's the exciting time of reconnecting. Usually family reunions involve a lot of food, that's exciting too, 
right? Except sometimes the food sits out all day. You're like, oh, that's a... But anyway, it's fun to have food, part of the family union. Usually there's games, various games, activities, sports. Years ago, my, my, my wife's family had a, has a, had a family reunion, and, and the little kids all got to kind of churn and make homemade ice cream. It was really cool. I joined in as part of the little kids. <laughs> but family reunions can also be pretty awkward. There's the weird family member that nobody wants to talk to. Will they show up? I hope not. Or that uncle or aunt that always brings up politics, and you know it's like clockwork. Here we go. Or the hushed conversations about the family drama that you really didn't want to know about. And look out if the conversation steers towards religion, right? I show up, I'm a pastor in the family. Oh boy, here we go. This text begins with a family reunion, and it's beautiful, but don't miss this, that, that Moses sees this reunion with his father-in-law and his wife and his kids. This reunion is more than just a relational connecting with, with his father-in-law, whom he hasn't seen for a long time. No, he sees this as a God-given opportunity to share his own testimony of God's faithfulness and God's saving power. Beyond family reunions, do you see every conversation as an opportunity to share your testimony of God's saving power in your life. Let's look at how this plays out as it relates to God's mission and godly wisdom. Lesson number one, embrace God's mission to reach the nations with the gospel through you. Embrace God's mission to reach the nations with the good news, with the gospel through you. This chapter opens up by reintroducing us to Jethro, and it says in verse 1, he is the priest of Midian and the father-in-law of Moses, the father of Zipporah, his wife. Moses had lived in Midian for 40 years after he fled Egypt. Remember, he kills a guy, then he flees out, and he lives in the wilderness, lives in Midian for 40 years. He has a family. He marries Zipporah. He has two children. And actually, his wife and kids had, had actually gone with Moses back to Egypt initially Exodus 4, but, but, but for whatever reason, he sent her and the children back to Midian, most likely doing this for their safety. Maybe things were heating up with Pharaoh, and he's like, my family's not safe. I'm sending them out of here. But now Moses and the Israelites are back in the vicinity of Midian, and Jethro, his father-in-law, hears that the people are in their backyard, and, they, and he brings his daughter and, and grandchildren back to Moses, and there's this beautiful family reunion. And it says in verse 1 that Jethro had heard of all that God had done to Moses and for the people of Israel. So word is spreading about God's deliverance, which clues us in. There's more than meets to eye in terms of this family reunion. And so Moses goes out to meet, to greet Jethro. And listen, if you're about to get married to, to, to someone, you, you go out to the father-in-law and here's what you should do. Do like Moses. You want to bow down and you want to kiss your father-in-law. All right, this is a good way to raise your standing. Just helping anybody who's single, just giving you some advice. No, he does what is customary in this time. He bows down, he kisses his father-in-law, hugs his wife and kids whom he hasn't seen in a while. And it says that they go into Moses' tent and catch up on all that God had done for them. 
Can you tell, you're kind of reading between the lines, but can you tell that this is refreshing to Moses? This is an encouragement to him. Even the conversation that, it, that ensues, how Moses shares it, he shares it in a way that, that it encourages him to be able to look back and reflect on all that God had done for him personally and for the people of Israel. It refreshed his soul. Look, as a leader, he's been threatened by Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh at one point said, if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. He's been threatened by his own people for his leadership in the wilderness. They keep grumbling. And Exodus 17 says he was tired of lifting up his hands, right? He's a tired leader. And then and, and even this verse, he's tired of listening to people come for all their disputes. And so here he is, a tired leader. So I don't want you to miss this, that in the Lord's kindness and in his timing, he brings Jethro and Moses' family back to him. Are you tired or weary today? God in his providence and in his kindness knows how to refresh you. Trust him to do this in his time. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I had been battling discouragement. Well, out of nowhere, it seems, uh, last week, my cousin, uh, my family's from Egypt, which is interesting preaching on Exodus, but anyway, my family uh, is from Egypt, and my cousin, who I'm very close to, had to come to America for something. And so he, he comes kind of in a, it was a really quick trip. And he comes and he visits with our family for a few days. And it's been years since I gotten to see him. And it was so encouraging to us to hear how he's doing, to hear how the rest of my family's doing back home in Egypt. And, and he's getting married in June. And so he's like begging, inviting our family. We have to come visit in Cairo. But listen, that time with my cousin was refreshing to my soul. It can do that. God knew at the right time. But look, there's something deeper happening in this interaction between Moses and Jethro. This isn't about just family ties. This is about what God has been doing in revealing himself by rescuing a people for himself. Look at verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardships that he had come up, that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Isn't that an amazing summary of what God had been doing? And Jethro, it says, rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Is Moses trying to convert his father-in-law here? I mean, isn't that like the cardinal rule of what not to do with in-laws? Moses is clearly sharing his testimony, right, of what happened to, to Pharaoh, how God delivered his people out of slavery with all the plagues. He tells Jethro, I'm sure, about the Passover and how all the Israelite firstborn were redeemed out of that. They were rescued and how, the, how, how God led them through the Red Sea on dry land. And then when the Egyptians came after them, they were drowned and, and all the hardships in the wilderness, providing food, manna from heaven, water from the rock. And I love how, how Moses says, quote, all the hardships that had come upon them and how the Lord had delivered them. Do you see what Moses is doing? He is sharing the good news with Jethro. 
He's explaining, this is who Yahweh is. Remember, Jethro is the, the priest of Midian. And here is Moses saying, I want to tell you who Yahweh is, how he has revealed himself to me and to us, and what he has proven about who he is. And he's doing so in such a way that it shows Jethro that Yahweh really is the one true God. He is worthy of his worship and allegiance. How do I know that? Look at verse 10 and 11. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord. This is, this is deep language of, of faith and worship. Who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Jethro hears about the truth about Yahweh the God of Israel, and rejoices in what he hears, and then he praises God personally and declares, this God really is the one true God. And in response to this newfound knowledge of God, Jethro brings his own sacrifices, verse 12, and he, and he gives them as an act of worship. Jethro is converted here. He believes in Yahweh. He even worships Yahweh in the way that God instructed his people to worship him with these sacrifices. And in case there's any doubt, the response of the Israelite leadership in verse 12 is significant. It says, they all gather together and they welcome Jethro into their fellowship by sharing a meal with him. Not just any meal. Notice at the end of verse 12, they ate their bread before God. It literally reads, in the presence of God. This was a covenantal meal signifying their affirmation of this man's faith in Yahweh. Why is this important? Why is this here? Because it fulfills what the Lord would reveal much later in the New Testament very clearly. But for now, we're getting glimpses of it. And we've known ever since Abraham that, that God's been doing this work. In Ephesians 3, 6, it says this. This mystery is that the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel, the good news. You see, Jethro is a Gentile. He's not Jewish. He's Midianite. And God told Israel that they would be his special people. They would be like a son to him. He would be like a father, a father to them. And yet God's plan in redeeming Israel wasn't just to take them out of slavery just for them. The goal of God's salvation all along, the purpose of him calling a people to himself, was to actually bring all the nations to an awareness of this same God that they might worship him as well. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then he says this, and in you all families, ethnos, all peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And then Jesus says to us, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All nations, right there, 
all peoples, all families, all people groups. This is the missionary heart of God to call a people to himself so that they can testify to all nations of the saving power and the amazing grace of our Lord. Christian, are you doing this? Moses shared the good news of Yahweh with Jethro. Are you sharing the good news of Yahweh, God, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? Are you sharing your testimony of how, here's how, how Moses put it, are you sharing your testimony of all the hardships you've gone through and how the Lord has delivered you from them and through them? This is God's mission, which means this is your mission. This is not, you're not responsible for how people respond to you sharing. You are responsible to be an ambassador for Christ, to represent him and share the great love that he has given to you and to let it overflow to others. And look, some of us are literally called to go to the nations and do this. We're actively talking to prospective missionaries right now who are seeking to plant churches in unreached people groups in a part of the world. And we're saying, praise God, that is awesome. The Great Commission is advancing and maybe God is calling you to join them. Give your life to what matters most. But look, we also need people right here, right in this area, who can share the good news as the nations come to us. You realize that's what's happening, right? Moses is doing his thing, doing, and, and God brings Jethro to him. Look, you're doing your thing. Did you know that you have neighbors and, and people in your workplace and people who are coming to our church visiting who are from all over the world? Did you know that? Just look around and you'll see it. Are you prepared, Christian, to welcome them into your home, into your life? like Moses did, and share with them how the life and death and resurrection of Jesus have come to define your identity and your very life? Moses could have said to Jethro, hey, thanks, Dad. Thanks for, thanks for bringing my family. See you later. You're Midianite. You're, you're, you know, I, I, don't, I worship Yahweh now. You worship whoever now. No, thank you, but that's all. You stay over there, and then you go back to your, no, come on in. I want to share with you what I know about the, the living God. This is not a suggestion, this is a command, because this is the mission. Will it be costly? Yes. Will it involve risk? Yes. But you have Christ in you, Christian, the hope of glory. He will help you, strengthen you, and guide you. Embrace God's mission to reach the nations with the gospel through you. Lesson number two, fulfill your role in God's church. After this family reunion... We get a picture of a typical day in the life of the people in the wilderness. And it says, in verse 13, Moses would go out and judge the people all day. Twice, we're told, the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. Moses was acting as the judge, the police, the counselor, the MVA, the IRS, the president, and the pastor all at one. That is not good. Any one of those things is enough to be like, whoo. He broke my wagon, Moses, do something. She stole my pot, do something. His ox gored my sheep, do something. 
And Jethro goes out, kind of, you get the picture that he kind of walks out for morning coffee and he's like, what in the world is happening here? I, I don't understand. And he says to Moses, this is not good. You can't do this all by yourself. He literally says, you will suffer and the people will suffer. Notice that? You'll wear yourself out and them out. Them for waiting and getting frustrated how long it takes for justice and you for being the only one in charge. And Moses tell, Jethro tells Moses, you need to make a change now. And listen to his advice, verse 19. Now obey my voice, I'll give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place them, such men, over the people of chiefs. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide themselves. See, it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. Amazingly, Moses listens to his father-in-law. He humbly does what he says. A couple lessons here. First, there's a lesson on delegating responsibility. And we're going to discuss that because it's important. But let me just, I got a big picture here. Exodus is not a book on best management practices, okay? You understand? Like there, there is a lesson here and I'm going to share it, but there's a theological significance to what's happening here. And that is this. This story paves the way for the giving of the law. I need you to see that. Israel needs a system for resolving disputes because Israel is about to become a nation governed by the rule of law, and that is God's law. And so this story reveals the need for God's people to live under the authority and rule of God's law, which is coming. Stay tuned. That's the rest of Exodus. So it lays the foundation for the need for them to live under the authority of God's law. But Jethro tells Moses, you need to fulfill, in verse 20, your unique ministry. Here, Moses, you're the mediator for the people, I can tell. Here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to represent the people before God in prayer. And then you're supposed to teach God's word, God's statutes to the people. In verse 20, he says, you're supposed to warn them. That word warn literally means to teach or it means to shed light on something. Moses was called to teach God's law, to shed light on what God has revealed about living in a covenant relationship with him. But Moses needed organizational structure to help him do this. And Jethro says, find able men to do this. What does that look like? Men who fear God, meaning they recognize that serving God is serious business. Men are tr- who are trustworthy. Men you can count on without wondering about their motives, about wondering whether they will follow through. And they are to hate bribes. They are to be impartial, honest men, not in it for the money, men of integrity. And they would be in charge of smaller groups, thousands and fifties and hundreds and tens. And Moses would act as sort of like the Supreme Court of Israel, the last resort for any dispute. How does this apply to us? Two applications. The first one about our leaders. I submit to you that a healthy church, any healthy church, 
would have a plurality of qualified elders to shepherd the church body, to shepherd God's people. A healthy church understands and affirms the value of a plurality, meaning multiple qualified elders to shepherd God's people. The qualifications that Jethro offers for appointing leaders are character qualities. Notice he doesn't say, find the best and the brightest, the sharpest, the most charisma, the most popular men, and put them in charge. No. No, that's not how you find leaders. The qualifications he gives to Moses are very similar to what Paul lays out to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. When you look for elders, when you look for deacons, look for these character qualities. Did you know that as a church, we as a church have a team of elders, men who have been examined, tested, and approved by this congregation to be spiritual leaders of this church? Did you know that? I hope you do. We call them elders or pastors. Refers to the same office. They're interchangeable terms. We have staff elders who work full-time for the church, who spend 50 to 60, 70 hours a week serving this church family. And then we have lay elders, men who serve in jobs outside of the church, but equally share in the responsibility to lead, shepherd, and teach our church family. As verse 20 says, to know the way in which we will walk and what we must do. These are your elders, church. This is what we mean by a plurality of elders. Yeah, praise God. We have 13 elders who meet together twice a month for three hours or more to pray for you members by name, to ask about how you're doing. We literally take a segment of the congregation each meeting and say, how is so-and-so doing? What are they struggling with? How can we pray for them? Has anyone talked to them? We meet together to ensure that we are teaching sound doctrine. We meet together to care for the members who are struggling with both sin and suffering. We meet together to decide how to steward the resources God has entrusted to our church. And these men all serve in various ministries throughout the church. Just so we're clear, elders, pastors are not called to do the work of the ministry, but to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4. Do you understand this church and embrace it? Do you appreciate that you have men of integrity and humility who genuinely love God and work tirelessly to help you become mature in Christ? These are not perfect men. We are all flawed. But I pray that you would see these leaders as here. Look, do you see these leaders as here to fix your problems? Or as shepherds who are called to care for your soul by teaching God's word and praying for you. Being a spiritual leader is an honor, but it comes at a great cost. Jethro tells Moses in verse 22, these other leaders will bear the burden with you. He used that word for a reason. Because there is a burden to carry. The burden of studying and teaching God's word week in and week out the burden of addressing conflict in the church body among marriages and parents and church members, the burden of seeing people turn away from God to satisfy their sinful desires and to walk away from Jesus, to see the burden of, of walking with members who are going through all kinds of trials and suffering, to visit people in the hospital, to, to, to organizing outreach events, to recruit and train volunteers, to earnestly pray for the flock, to walk with families grieving the loss of a loved one, 
counseling, late night calls, seeing friends who leave the church, there is a burden to leadership. And yet if you ask any one of these men about their calling, I am confident they would say with Paul, God's grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness because it is an honor to serve. But notice the people of Israel had to accept these appointed leaders. The people of Israel had to be okay that they wouldn't be able to get to Moses for every dispute. Do you appreciate when one of these elders calls you to check on you or visits you in the hospital or helps counsel you? Would you join me in praying? This is one of my regular prayers. It's been for years that God would raise up more elders, men who can lead our church spiritually for the glory of God. But that's not the only application here. A healthy church has a plurality of elders, but a healthy church also embraces this mindset. Every member is a minister. Every member a minister. Some are appointed as leaders, but every Christian has a vital role to play in the body of Christ. You can pray for others. Did you know that? Nobody has to appoint you or nominate you for that. You can visit people in their homes. There's no rules against that. You can volunteer in a ministry. You can share a meal with others. You can invite people into your home. You can care for those who are hurting. You can share God's word with others in a small group or in a Bible study or in a Sunday morning class. You can give generously for the work of the gospel. That's what we mean by every member of minister. This is what a healthy church looks like. Every member sees their role to serve, love, pray, and give. And you don't need a title to do any of those things. But I need to warn you, as you do these things together in community, as as the Israelites are literally living on top of each other in the wilderness, as we live together in community, as we do life together, here's the warning, and I say this every time we have a new members class. If you join this church, if you get in community, if you get close to other Christians, guess what there's going to be? Conflict. Oh man, I thought if we're Christians, we don't have to deal with that. Anytime you do life with other sinners, there will be conflict. In church, you should assume there will be conflict, just like the Israelites faced. The question should never be, will there be conflict? No, the question in your heart should be, how will I address address conflict when it arises? If you're in marriage and you think, Please, Lord, no more conflict. That's a fool's hope. And I love my wife and she loves me, but man, right? Yeah, what do I say after that? I don't know what to say. I don't know. Stick to the notes, Mark. The question question isn't whether there will be conflict. The question is, how will you address conflict when it arises? You know it will. You know it will. It arises at work. It arises with neighbors. It arises with your kids. It arises with your in-laws. It arises with any relationship that you have. So it's no, it's no surprise that's going to happen in the body of Christ. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, here's what you do. Here's what you do. Clear instructions. It's not a mystery. When someone offends you, you go to them privately and have a conversation about it. And look, I could just stop there, and most of us don't want to do that. 
We do not want to have hard conversations. It should be normal for the body of Christ to have hard conversations. That in humility, we speak the truth in love. And humility, because you could be wrong. I heard you say this, but did you mean to, were you, were you? And if it's not resolved then, you bring someone else along who can be a support and help. And if that's still an issue, you bring an elder or a spiritual leader involved. And you go through this process to show that the gospel is a message of reconciliation, and that's part of the ministry of reconciliation. Are you fulfilling your role in God's church? Do you believe that every member is a minister? Look, for some of you, I just would ask, are you a member? Are you a committed member of a local church and says, you know what, I'm in. I'm in because I I know things are hard, but I'm in because I know this is going to transform me into the image of Christ. I encourage you to do so. In fact, it's when each of us fulfills our unique role in the body of Christ that the gospel will be seen and experienced by those around us. That's why lesson two flows from lesson one. God's mission is to share the gospel through you. God's mission is for us to embrace our role in the body of Christ. And then finally, lesson three. Anticipate the future feast of Jesus and live in light of it. You're like, what are you talking about? Don't miss the theological significance of this meal between Jethro and Moses. As one commentator put it, this is the climax of Exodus. I don't know if it's the, but it is a climax. It is a hinge moment. It is a significant moment. And it happens in a chapter that's, that's very mundane, uh, uninspiring, very ordinary, right? Moses is already standing between a burning, in front of a burning bush, a theophany, right? We got signs and wonders, frogs and blood and gnats and hail. The Israelites have been miraculously brought out of slavery, Red Sea and all that, Pharaoh destroyed, manna from heaven, water from the rock, providing every day. And right before the law, things slow down. And the rest of Exodus is about the law. And right as it slows down, right, things are going fast, 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 and it slows down, and then we get this, this meal, this encounter with Jethro and Moses, this bridge between God saving his people and God speaking his law to his people. And it's this meal shared in the presence of God. Notice at the end of verse 12 again. They ate the bread with Moses and father-in-law and all the elders and there were sacrifices made and they do it before God in the presence of God. This is a covenantal meal. Why is that important? Because this Exodus story is a pointer to a greatest Exodus story. As we've been saying throughout this series, that a greater act of deliverance from sin and death through the personal work of Jesus Christ, that is what this Exodus points to and is meant to picture. Why did Jesus come down from heaven? Because we needed an example of how to live a good life? No, because we needed another wise sage to show us how to. No, that's not why. Jesus came down because we are enslaved to sin. We worship false gods, the gods of money, sex, career, family, ministry, ourselves. And you say, well, some of those things are good things. I know. False gods are simply good things that we elevate into ultimate things. 
And like the Israelites, we can't break free. We cannot free ourselves. We need a redeemer, someone to rescue us, not from the outside of us, but to rescue us from the inside. And so Jesus comes down to be our redeemer, and he lives the life you and I should have lived. He was perfect and holy. He was God in the flesh, and yet fully human. He is rejected by the world, nailed to a cross, and he came to be our substitute. He experienced all the plagues that we deserved because of our sin. He took all the shame and all the guilt and all the rejection because he died as if he were you. He died in your place. On the cross, Jesus literally became the Passover lamb. His blood covering us. And through faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone, we are united to Jesus Christ by his death and in his resurrection, he rose to prove he can rescue us from sin and death. But if, but if he doesn't rise from the dead, oh, we might go back into slavery to that. No, he rose from the dead to prove, look, you'll never go back to slavery to sin. You'll never be enslaved to that again. You are free and free indeed if you are in Christ. That's what he came to do. That's the greatest exodus. And if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, what is stopping you from trusting him right now? This is the greater exodus. And what is the climax of this greater exodus? What did Jesus do? Why did he come? Did he just save us so that he could send us out into the wilderness of this broken world? We said this life is the wilderness. Is that all? Saves us from our sin, rah, 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 eternal life, and now we live in this miserable wilderness? No. No, he saved us to prepare us in the wilderness for an eternal banquet in heaven. You see, he invites us, no matter our background, no matter our cultural differences, no matter what might divide us, to bring us together like this to worship the living God and proclaim the gospel. Church, he wants us to remember here, remember your future. Remember Revelation 19. Look at the end of the story. It's not wrong to read the end of the story now. Revelation 19 says that Jesus will gather a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they'll gather around the table, and he will be at the head of that table, and it calls this the wedding supper of the Lamb, the great feast of Jesus, when all sin is gone, all suffering is gone, and he's made all things new, and Christ's sacrifice is what will bring us together, not our shared interests, not our skin color, not our stage of life. It is Christ who unites us. Every time we gather like this, it's a picture of heaven. Every time we, we gather like this, we are a witness to the world of the great redemption of Jesus, that he has rescued a diverse people to love one another, serve one another as a witness to the world that all are invited to join. This feast is big enough. It's not like a wedding and you're like, sorry, I can only invite 100 people, only 400. No, it's a wedding and Jesus says, I invite everybody. Everyone gets an invitation. He's better than Oprah. Everyone gets an invitation. Anticipate this future feast with the Lord and live with the hope and joy and endurance that comes from knowing he will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your word. It's living and active. And even when it doesn't seem directly applicable, we, we know that you are seeking to teach us. 
that you want to shed light on your word that we might follow you. The Israelites were in the wilderness and part of that was testing them. Will they trust you? Will they live under your authority? Lord, here we are in the wilderness of this life and part of what you're doing is reminding us will we trust you? Will we live under the authority of your word? Or will we take matters into our own hands? Will we say, this is too hard, or I don't like it, or I would rather be happy than holy? Or some of us came in with burdens. Some of us do not know that if we're going to make it through this week, if things don't change. And maybe they don't care so much about how the church is structured, but Father, I pray that they would care that you are actively involved in their lives as their shepherd. That you're the same God who walked through the Israelites every step of the way. You're the same God who came down to us in Jesus to remind us we will never walk alone. Today, would you help us? Today, would you help those who are on the brink of sin and who think this is okay and they've justified it and yet I pray, Lord, that today you would convict them and show them walking the path of taking up their cross will always be the path that leads to blessing and joy. As hard as it is, God, help us to hold on to you even as we know the greatest truth is that you're holding on to us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.